Hey there. Thank you for giving VBS a shot. I'm recording this quick intro a few months after our first episode now that we have a better idea of exactly what it is we're doing here. This show is a, call it a crash course deconstruction of the Bible by two people who were raised in church, one ex-evangelical, hello, and one still mainline Protestant. You'll meet her shortly. We're learning everything we can about each Bible story as we go trying to peel away what we were handed by old white guys and uncover the weird, messy, radiant, troubling, haunted, challenging stuff that's really there. We're far from experts, but we're trying to read the experts as we go, and we'll have on a wide variety of guests, including regular folks whose lived experiences are different from our own. Be advised, black lives matter. Trans kids are made in the image of a gender-fluid God. Jesus said hell is for rich people. Eve did nothing wrong, and saying... Old Testament God is mean, but New Testament God is nice, is somewhere between ignorant and anti-Semitic. Also know the audio quality will improve after this first episode. And we say in this one that we're mainly using the NIV translation. We're actually using a mix. NRSV, Robert Alter, N.T. Wright, Amy Jill Levine's annotated New Testament, plus a big pile of commentaries. Brethren, sistren, all otherin. Welcome to the Vacation Bible School Podcast. My name is Jason Kirk, your youth pastor for this excursion, in which we will be attempting to podcast our way through the entire PDF wiki experience known as the Holy Bible. We are joined today by co-pastor Emily Kirk. Some denominations and religions, of course, went thousands of years without uh, appointing women as ministers, and we've managed to do it on day one, so we're making great time here. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I traveled very far to get here. Yeah, you you are uh, also living at this studio at, oh. for six straight weeks. That's true. <laughs> very I guess ge- I didn't travel very far at all. <laughs> <laughs> very generous of you to uh, remain home tonight. Thank as, you. As you have. Appreciate it. <laughs> so on this podcast, each episode, we will take a piece of the Bible. We will try to sort of separate the reading from the things that we have been taught to read about it. Above all, we're going to try to have a little bit of fun. People who have signed up to listen to this, you come from a wide, wide range of backgrounds. You know, we appreciate non-believers. First, this is how a congregation works. The guests who come in, it's their first time in church. They're the ones who we make you stand up and we clap for you. Non-believers, thank you for joining us. Thank you for trusting your brains with us. Thank you for trusting that we are not here to insult your intelligence. Believers, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you for trusting us to, you know, we're not here to mock your faith. At least one of us has faith. I sure do. <laughs> I have had faith. I, I try my best. Um, and everybody in between, believers and non-believers, I mean, I personally give you an extra welcome because I stand among you. What we would like to do is, before we get into the Bible stuff each episode, is we'd like to share our testimonies a little bit. We'd like to talk about you know, how we interacted with this stuff as kids, if we did at all. We want to have a wide range of guests on here, people from not just a wide array of denominations, but of religions, non-religions. So, Emily. Hi. You were raised Nazarene. Yes. I mean, I didn't grow up wondering, like, why the Nazarenes were different than the Baptists or the Methodists. I just figured Christians were Christians, and I happened to go to the Nazarene portion of Christendom. Church was mostly my escape from everything else in the world, and it was fine that way. It was a place where I went and had fun, and especially youth group and my teenage years was a place that was basically where I went to have fun and get away from everything else. 
I don't know, it felt pretty normal to me. We had an awesome youth pastor and wife. They were cool to hang out with and do lock-ins with and all of those fun things. Yeah. Yeah. So I was raised Southern Baptist and as far as... Very different experience. (laughs) Yes. And like, you know, like you, I didn't grow up thinking like, wow, I wonder how different it is for people who go to different churches because the far majority of my close friends were also Southern Baptist just because that was the life we grew up in. And like, you know, I I knew like Catholic kids and Muslim kids and Jewish kids and whatever, but it never registered to me that the church I went to that there were interesting factors about it that set it apart from other denominations. As far as youth group goes, I think you and I had very similar experiences. Yes. Like it was it was fun. It's where we had our friends. Yeah, we came together for friends, for activities, for music. Music was hit or miss, but regardless. I enjoyed my music. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out youth group. Big church, I think, is where our denominations differ quite a bit because I've been to a couple services at Nazarene churches with you Mm -hmm. and it was pretty unfamiliar to me. It was uh, it's a little a little more chill. A little bit more normal. I mean, every church is going to have its own way of doing things, even within a denomination. So luckily for you, we went to cool places. Yeah. And like I was looking up a little bit about the Nazarenes as a denomination. And compared to some of the more hardline evangelical denominations, like a bit more open on social issues, not exactly as progressive as you'd like. But one thing that stood out a little bit is that the Nazarenes appear a bit less antagonistic toward science. Yeah. I don't remember ever feeling like science was a bad thing. I mean, obviously, I grew up Christian, so believing in the story of creation that was the obvious choice. Um, I didn't really give it much thought until later on that maybe more things could work together than that. I didn't feel like science is a bad thing by any means. See, this is definitely where we differ as far as <laughs> upbringings go. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, we were we were seven days is what the Bible says. And therefore, it's seven days. Yeah, I don't think I ever took that part literally. Yeah, I don't know if I did. I know I, know I was supposed to. <laughs> I don't know that I ever felt like I should take it literally. Okay, got it. Tom Hanks? Former Nazarene. Did you know that? No. Wyclef John, former Nazarene. <laughs> See, we got some good people here. Unfortunately, also the uh, the painter of light, Nazarene. The guy, Thomas Kincaid. Yes. The guy who somehow earned like a chain of mall art shops because he paints the color yellow. He paints light better dark. than most. Yeah. Nazarene's not all perfect, clearly. Wow. So this episode is going to be... A little different from all the ones that follow it. With most of these episodes, we're going to try and make it through an entire book of the Bible. Some of them even multiple books of the Bible. I am very sorry to Philemon and Habakkuk, but you're not getting entire episodes, folks. You're going to have to sit with Malachi. You're an incredible guy. Jude, the book of Jude. Some of you are just going to have to sit together. I'm not doing a 66-episode podcast. That's possibly not true. (laughs) Because there's a lot of non-canon stuff. There's... There's a lot of other Bible content. We'll see how far we get. But the book of Genesis is a little bit different. I get to be here for the really fun stuff. I have more questions than answers. Yeah, that's, that's, that's theology. <laughs> that's how it works. That's how it's supposed to work. So this episode, just because we're going through Genesis 1 through 5, this is the material that is just, it, it stands so apart from the rest of the entire book. Genesis 1 through roughly 5 is the part of it that is most starkly by genre, and don't read anything into this next word, it's not a bad word, mythology. I'm not making a judgment as, as to whether it's true or false. It fits within the literary genre of mythology. 
the creation story, of which there are hundreds from all over the world, many of them with similar motifs, themes. The, the purpose of the creation story is not necessarily to stand against science for all time. It's essentially to be the science of the time. It's, it's a way to explain the world before you have microscopes and telescopes. And a lot of these creation stories do a very cool job of this. I think we'll get into that in a bit once we make our way through Genesis 1. And it's going to take a while because there's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit. Just, we got to break up Genesis into multiple episodes because we have a book that is, most of the book of Genesis is presented as history. The first five to ten chapters is mythology and it runs together in just fascinating ways that I think it helps if you think of it as separate books. I also feel like it, it's kind of neat the way that it reads, not just one through five, but different parts of the Bible in general, how if you choose to inject science into it, because I don't think that the Bible is exclusive of science, that it all still works. You got there, like there are some parts where you gotta, you gotta be a little generous with the, you know, with the 3000 year old poetry that's been translated and all that, but you can find ways, you can find ways to believe in science and to, to look at this and say like, yeah, this is all pretty good guess. If this, if these guesses were divinely inspired at the time, yeah, we can vibe with Fine that. Fine by me. Sure. <laughs> no objections here. I, I want to propose that our order of events here, the verse we start with is Genesis 1-1. Oh, why would we do that? Well, it includes a little bit of a, an instruction on how to read itself. It okay. starts with the words in the beginning. Oh, so to me, that I haven't like, heard that one before. <laughs> and like, I think those three words are kind of easy to cruise past. So let's park it right there. This is an example of how we're really going to... It's going to be fun. We're really going to luxury for a ride in, here. in these five chapters. In the beginning, we read that 3,000 years later, after it was written, or 6,000 years in the storyline, that it was referring to the beginning of the Earth, our solar system, our galaxy, our universe, everything that is a part of actual physical time. I don't know that we're supposed to take it that way. I think that if we take the words as literally as possible, the only thing that definitely begins with these three words is the story. In the beginning of the story, God created the heavens and the earth. There's, um, again, a lot of a lot more questions than answers, even in <laughs> that one sentence. I think in the three ways to read all this stuff, you know, theological, historical, and literary, there's a little bit of each of those in there. The historical is obviously like you need you need the context of like when this was written and all that. But like to me, literary is the most interesting way to read in the beginning, because all we know without adding thousands of years of religion into this verse is that the story has begun. God is making stuff. So furthermore, as we go, we're mostly going to use the NIV translation of the Protestant canon. That is no slight against any other translation. Uh, I don't want to read the King James Version. It's just what we both grew up with. That's really the only reason. We will look at Catholic-only books, Jewish-only books, and at times, times we'll go back and look at the old language, even though we don't speak any of them. Well, even putting together one through five for this, even I went through and looked at other versions because if I didn't quite know what they were saying, then maybe another version said it differently that made a little bit more sense to me. Yeah. And like a lot of this stuff is really fuzzy. There's a lot of these verses where we literally, and Genesis 1-1 is a good example, we literally do not 100% know what the author intended for it to say. It seems super simple until you really sit down and diagram the sentences and look at exactly all the things it could be saying. Here is possibly the biggest example. The word God, chapter one of Genesis, is not Yahweh, being Jehovah, being the God we think of as the God of Jews, Christians, Muslims, the world's most popular God. The word God in Genesis one, you could simplify it enough to call him a God, the God of Genesis one. In fact, this God later in this chapter refers to himself in the plural sense. 
indicating any number of things. You know, Christians go back and say, oh, well, he was, he was ta talking about himself and the angels, or he was referring to himself as the royal we, or any number of things. But the word God from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2 completely changes. I have a theory <laughs> that we'll get to later, but that is just one example of how much is going on behind the words that we see and behind the things we've read into those words. And everyone has their own interpretation of that, and I don't necessarily think that questioning it makes it wrong. I think it's just everyone has to understand it in their own way, whether you believe in God or not. Sure. So, the book of Genesis, the storyline explanation, the, the like tradition historical explanation is that Moses wrote the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew and Christian Bibles. Um, he wrote those before, during, and after his parts of that story, basically. Genesis might have had at least four layered authors and an editor across as many as 500 years. We do not know exactly when these things were written. The oldest author could have been 3,000 years ago. The youngest author, likely around 2,500 years ago. One author, which is probably the oldest, is the Yahweh author, and we'll get more into that one in chapter 2. Usually theorized to be a much more recent author is the one who wrote Genesis 1. That one describes God like it's like the eye of Sauron, like just this all-powerful thing that just blurts and things happen. This kind of scary like storm monster <laughs> in the sky. But yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see as we go how these authors sort of piled up on each other. So that's Genesis 1-1. We got through one verse. That's like 10 words. So Genesis 1-2. You like this verse. Yeah. And literally, the Bible says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, which just makes me think of a video game or something. Like God is surfing. Yeah. That's just what he's doing there at the beginning of the universe. There are two, like, very, very different ways you can take this. And again, like, this is an example of a verse that, if you've read this a hundred times, you have breezed past it, never thought about it. The deep there, darkness was over the surface of the deep. The deep refers to underworld concepts that come from all sorts of older, other religions. It's very nearly a reference, almost a copy of the Babylonian creation story, where a god, much like the god of Genesis 1, defeats the ocean chaos god. It's this scary mean lady who is, you know, just this dark ocean, and that is what the earth comes from. The word spirit here, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Christian retcon of this is to say spirit clearly refers to the Holy Spirit. This is clearly, that's our trinity, that's us. Like, Christians go back and look at all this stuff, and they go, oh, yeah, yep, the Jesus reference, yep, it was all seeded all along, it was all foreshadowing. And, like, that's cool, you know, it makes for a nice coherent story if you want to, you know, tie everything in one package. But the word spirit in Genesis 1-2 means something close to wind. And again, the word that we're using for God is, is less the God, more a God. So if you're a Christian, Genesis 1-2, it means something like the New Testament Holy Spirit of the one God named Jehovah was physically surfing across Earth's oceans. I don't hate it. <laughs> Which is sure, it's pretty awesome. It's good for him. I don't know why he ruined it by creating people, because, like, that sounds like a good time. He must have been in quarantine for too long. <laughs> That's one way you could choose to read this. The other, if you want to tie together Middle East historical context, the Canaanite Babylonian deleted scenes, which we will get to, and if you want to add in just a tiny bit of imagination, you can get something like... The wind of an important god was blowing toward the chaos goddess of the void, which I think that's pretty awesome, too. I mean, it sounds like a movie. Yeah. See, this is already a more exciting story. It's like Thor and Hela. Yes. So, like, now we've gone from, like, God's just cruising across the world, man. He's just out there vibing to, like, God is preparing for battle. Yeah. 
Hi there. Here's a note from <laughs> that we're adding back into this episode. We said about a million things about Genesis 1-2, but I neglected to bring up the single coolest fact about Genesis 1-2. Emily, did you know that the word for spirit in Genesis 1-2 is feminine? Well, I do now. So there you have it, folks. For within, within just the very first chapter of the Bible, God is not only multiple genders, multiple genders of people are made in the image of God. So later in Genesis 1, what happens from there? What, what's God get up to once he's like, hangs up his surfboard? Okay. God said, let there be light. Whoa. And there was light. Oh, it's just like that? Yeah. But my question is, what is the light? Well, surely it would be light from like stars, right? Nope. Not yet. Oh my. I like this verse because it's a scientific guess from 3,000 years ago. And it's written in such a way where you can choose to say there's some huge contrast between this and what we now know about science, which is like the universe began with the Big Bang. Or you can say this was such a decent guess written in such a way that couldn't the Big Bang just be the creation of light? Because it's not like right away there were stars. This sort of gets into one thing you were, you were noticing and you're talking about that. The, yeah. The so, flexible day theory. Yeah. So one of the things that I've never understood is stating that the earth is only 6,000 years old because that's what the Bible teaches. And I don't necessarily believe that the Bible teaches that. And part of that is, and I mean, we could go through all of these verses to see it, but it's not until day four that the sun and the moon and the stars were created. So during that time frame, we're told that these lights are going to serve as signs to mark sacred times and days. I think it's plausible that those three days prior to that could be billions of years because we're on God's timeline. So each of those verses tells us there was evening and there was morning. Those are his evenings and those are his mornings, but that's not necessarily our timeline. Because it, it literally says that the stars are there, they mark time. And before right. then, there was no marker of time. And even as we continue, even once we have the sun and the moon and the stars, each of those verses that are creating things still say God's version of time where he says, and there was morning and there was evening on the fifth day or whatever. They all say that. So we're still on God's timeline, but he's also introduced a human timeline with the sun and the moon and the stars. I think this is a more creative and intelligent reading than like, the usual thing, which is to say, well, there's a verse way later on that was written hundreds of years later that says the day is as a thousand years to the Lord. And it's like, so I not- mean, it's still a good verse. And I still think it adds some flexibility, but this explains more of why that's a possibility. Yeah, because if you say the thousand years thing, like, okay, if you take that literally, okay, cool. Now we're up to 13,000 years. We are no closer to the real number. (laughs) But if we say, you know, the first day, the separation of light and dark, if we say that's the Big Bang, like, we might be talking seconds. We might be, you know, depending depending on the exact translation of the timeline we're talking about, we could be talking about a couple hundred thousand years. The second of those days... That one could be billions of years, you know, right. and then we get up to the stars. That's billions of years. Definitely. So like you can cook the timeline to make it work. And it's not about trying to make the Bible 100 percent scientifically accurate. That's not the standard. And that's OK. It's more about looking and just seeing ways where like this stuff doesn't have to be a fight. <laughs> right. You don't have to. And, and you don't have to wrestle like, OK, well, I believe this, but I can't believe this. I don't feel like you have to necessarily wrestle those things. They can live together peacefully. 
Yeah. This big battle that we have had in our country, you know, over the idea that you cannot square science and religion, like, there are lots of scientists who disagree. And there are lots of religious people who disagree. That's cool. Right. So what else does God make once he creates time? So once we have the sun and the moon and the stars, which I'm still curious what the light prior to that was, he goes on to create all the living creatures. So the Bible tells us that he says, let waters teem with fish and living creatures that would swim. Let the waters teem, but he doesn't say the waters are teeming. So to me, that's where evolution comes into play. How he's basically saying go reproduce, go increase your numbers, and this is how we're we're getting all of these new species. All the, all the creatures according to their kinds were being made. So that's not necessarily like, okay, this type of chicken with this type of chicken. It's just in this category of animal, they're now creating more. Yeah, like and it says, you know, the oceans teeming with different animals. That is literally the process of how life began on Earth. One-celled life forms in water become two-celled organisms, uh, make their way onto land, become dinosaurs, which turn into birds and remain with us today. Hopefully you can hear them in the background, the dinosaurs in our backyard. Um, They're a little bit quieter. We're recording late at night, but they're out there. Our dinosaurs are always watching over us. The idea that like evolution is totally in conflict with the Bible, it, that's only that's a fake battle, man. It is very easy to reconcile all of this stuff. I, I, lo- I like the passivity of let the waters team. It's not God saying, I will now create 300 different kinds of sharks. I will, I will sculpt them meticulously. I will now create nine different kinds of bass. One of them will be most prestigious to catch if you were a fisherman. <laughs> In, in, in North Georgia. It's just like, hey, man, hey, Ocean, just come up with some cool stuff, man. He started the process. Yeah, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push this button, and we're going to see where it ends up. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So what, so what comes next after these waters are teeming? So, and let the birds fly above. So after the waters, and then we have the birds. After we have all of our animals. Oh, and we got land in there somewhere, too. So the thing about the land is, like, this is where... This is my single favorite thing about the Canaanite Babylonian influence on the Hebrew religion. I do not consider that blasphemous because we are all God's children, including the Canaanites. Shout out to the Canaanites and the Babylonians for their ideas on God and for bringing us one step closer to this idea. In the Canaanite and Babylonian creation stories, and there's also a similar story in the Egyptian religions, at some point in time, way, way in the past, there was almost certainly... An Israelite creation story in which Yahweh, God of Israel, created the world by battling a giant sea monster, a Leviathan. You will see references to the Leviathan later in the Bible. It didn't make the Genesis cut, though. How do we know this? Because we can look at the God of Israel versus sea monster. Sometimes the name of the sea monster is Rahab. There is some of this stuff in Psalms, in Isaiah, in Job. There's Leviathan stuff elsewhere. All of this comes directly from Canaanites, the people from who the Israelites sprang, Babylon, the dominant culture, one of the dominant cultures of the area, Egypt, another dominant culture of the area, all of that stuff made its way into later books of the Bible, but didn't make the cut in Genesis 1. We have this like vestigial sea monster story that is not mentioned when in Genesis 1, God separates land from the water, defeats the chaos by just sort of doing it. Like there's no battle with a sea monster, which it kind of makes God sound even more powerful, the, the the Hebrew God, to just do it. Don't even need to fight. Just, yeah, that's my land. I'll take it. <laughs> and it also sorts of, sort of sets up the genius of the Hebrew Bible ter- in terms of like a competitive idea. 
it's not necessarily the oldest monotheism, but it does a brilliant job of sort of borrowing ideas from neighbors and then saying, yeah, uh, you have like five gods who fight each other. We have one who fights your main god. Give us your champion and we'll take him down. Like it's turning like a bunch of a bunch of intermingling five on fives and turning them into just a series of one on ones. It's an easier idea to sell. Just that's it. Just one guy. It's, it's an easy story to sell. It kind of makes it a little less mythological, Genesis 1. It turns it to like a decent guess at a scientific idea just with a person named God sort of running the controls. If you take out this Leviathan battle, and like, I'd like to read a Leviathan battle, but so once we have dirt. (laughs) Well, it's not just dirt. Sure, sure, sure. You have plants too. Okay, we have plants. All right. And Uh, the sky was created. Well, he set the moon and the sun and the vault of the sky. So space is created as well. So there's like... Or was already there. There's the sky ocean. See, we don't even know what they thought the moon was. They just knew it was there. There's like a light in the sky ocean. Great. Uh, And then we have the the crown jewel of Genesis 1. God rested. Just kidding. Mankind. Ugh. We did a great thing there. (laughs) Great job, God. (laughs) So that's it. That's Genesis 1. I think I think just like God, we will now rest. On to Genesis two. We we tag out one author. We tag out the author who refers to God as like, yeah, it's some like you know, it's very mysterious guy in the sky. And now we're gonna have some fun because it's time for the author known by biblical scholars as J. J for Jehovah, Jehovah for Yahweh, Yahweh for YHWH, which is the name of God that no one knows how to pronounce. So we just sort of throw words at it. This God, same guy, sure. But this aspect of God is more like a wacky uncle, like an eccentric uncle. He's got a temper. He's jealous, making decisions on the fly. This is when God goes from being like Eye of Sauron to like a character. This is the guy still figuring things out. This is kind of like the Jeff Goldblum version of God. Yes, very much. (laughs) This is neurotic God. I mean, I don't know if neurotic is the right word because I feel like he knows what he's doing, but he's... But it does feel like he's very much still figuring it out because now he's created these humans that can speak. So which Jeff Goldblum character is this? I think it's Jurassic Park. Well, it could be a combination of multiple, I believe. The Ragnarok Jeff Goldblum is a little bit uncomfortably close to what we have in the Bible. It's not (laughs) the guy who just zaps you with the melt stick for saying the wrong word. Yeah, that happens. Yeah. There is a flaming sword. I feel like Jurassic Park, Jeff Goldblum, because just a sort of a guy who's like, yeah, let's watch some chaos happen. I, I, I tried to tell you, tried to tell you not to eat the fruit, but you did. Yeah. Uh, who was right? Who's sitting alone in the Jeep? It's me, God. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum. So yeah, Genesis 2 is pretty cool and fun. What do you have on this one? It's basically like Genesis 1, except now we have more details, sort of. I don't know that I ever really thought that they were the same story. I just thought that 2 was like a progression from 1, but now I kind of feel like it's not. It's the same thing, just with more added details. Now that you've gone back and read it again for the first time in a while. Yeah. Yeah. It's different now. It feels different. It's literally written as two different stories back to back. Sorry, but as an editor, like I I have, not, not to speak out of turn, I have some recommendations for Ezra who probably edited this, like (laughs) maybe we could stitch these together a little bit. Sorry, sorry, not trying to be arrogant. Ezra, you did a great job. My favorite thing about this chapter is most Middle Eastern creator gods, they create when they're molding their first humans, molding humans out of clay is a very Middle Eastern creation story thing. You, You find these things are very regional, like Japan, Hawaii. They're about islands emerging out of the water, a plains Native American story is not about islands emerging out of water. So like Middle Eastern, it's a lot of it is about clay. And you can trace that back to, you know, 
Babylon, rivers. The god of Genesis is a little bit different. He does not use a potter wheel. He uses bare hands. He's kind of like a kid playing in the mud, making mud pies, and having his like little doll friends talk to him and stuff. Yeah, he's building a little clay man. Just like making friends and like, you know, it'd be cool if my friend could talk. Kind of just a lonely baby God. Yeah. I love the part toward the end. So God has made, in, in Genesis 2, God has made animals. He's made a person. He's made Adam out of dirt. He realizes like, okay, so Adam is lonely too. So in Genesis 2, he tries a few things, right? First, he lets Adam name all of the creatures. And as he's naming the creatures, because he decides that Adam needs helper, he gets through all of these creatures and is like, well, none of these are, are going to work. <laughs> work for what let's be clear <laughs> because like let's go back to genesis 1 where uh god said like it's, that's cool let's multiply let's populate the earth let's let's get some content going let's fill this planet up so then he makes one human right and is expecting the one human to populate the earth with humans apparently to that end our newly awakened baby god is uh lining animals up for adam and seeing if any are fit there imagine there's a hip- or hippopotamus he's, or he's realizing that the animals have friends adam needs a friend i didn't think that through before i started <laughs> or maybe i thought he'd be fine on his own i'm just picturing a dating show or maybe i just want all of these little th- creatures that i made to be able to continue because what happens with only this one but can't it be like a dating show where god is like adam what do you think of this bull weevil and adam's like mm. i don't think it's gonna work god well he also says he wants him as a helper there's no suitable helper he doesn't ever refer prior to eve being created as a wife yeah there are a lot of translations where instead of helper or helpmate it's counterpart Right. I like That's that a cool better. word. You know, Adam's looking at like the scorpions and the minnows and the hedgehogs and the murder hornets. Did you see the? Oh, yeah, they're here. Yeah. Adam's looking at the murder hornet. and He's like, I will not marry the murder hornet, God. And God's like, are you sure? Yeah, I made it. And I said it was good. One chapter ago, I said it was. So what? So what happens after this? Once God runs every animal on Earth, billions and billions of species, runs them all past Adam. And Adam is just sitting there like a like a picky Peter. rejecting every one of them god decided to put adam to sleep (laughs) god said hush so who knows why that is he may have been a cranky baby by that point because it's nap time so while he was asleep he took his rib one of his ribs and uh then stitched him back up and uh created eve from the rib we can see a progression of creation as god is getting better and better at it first we're gonna make one-celled organisms got it mastered that You got the YouTube tutorial open. Um, We're going to make fish. We're going to make, you know, then we're going to make lizards and, you know, eventually we're going to make a person. We're going to make him out of dirt with our bare hands. And breathe life into him. And just snort right up his nose. Mm -hmm. But when it's time to make a woman, we're going to introduce anesthesia. We're going to do surgery. We're going to use something stable, not a pile of mud. It's a more advanced process than when he made man. We look at this story and like... We've been taught to think of this story as, oh, women are second class. Women are supposed to be subservient. Here we have a woman who is designated as a counterpart and who is created via a more sophisticated process as the pinnacle of creation. Right. Things got better. Yeah. <laughs> Improvements were made. And then they obviously. continued getting better and better for the whole rest of the story, right? Yeah. Things got really good. Everything was great. And now we have coronavirus. On, on to Genesis 3. The spirit of of this masterful deity has been poured into these lumps of dirt. The simulation is off and running. We're going to see what these things do. God has told them, you can do whatever you want. Just don't eat that piece of fruit. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
That was their one rule, basically, is that they can't eat from that tree or they would certainly die. So this is interesting to me because the idea of death has already been brought up. Yeah, in order for the threat to register, they have to know what death is, which makes it pretty interesting and a thing that we often gloss over. Once they do eat this fruit, the threat that is handed down is that, well, the consequence, the punishment is that, well, now you're going to die. And like, we were already going to die because there was a tree of life and no one ate it. And God refers to the tree of life by saying, after Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God says, at least they didn't eat from the tree of life, implying that they were already mortal. I also like this because uh, <laughs> this is God just openly saying the humans, they have multiple infinity stones now. There is one more, the tree of life. If they get that one, what do they need me for? Because now they are gods. We often boil it down to just temptation and sin, but so much more interesting stuff is happening. So the process of Eve and Adam eating that fruit, there's another character here. Right. So after they're told this, um, the serpent comes along and asks Eve, did God really tell you not to eat from this tree? Where did he come from? What is he? He's speaking. So is it an animal? Is it a person? What do we have here? We know it ends up a snake because after everything goes down, God curses this being to crawl around in its belly like a snake. Right. And thus it becomes a snake. But whatever it was before it was cursed to crawl around in its belly. It sounds far more terrifying. Yeah. So like in prehistoric times, we know a lot of animals were much bigger than they are today. The megalodon shark starring Jason Statham. Or, <laughs> <laughs> or like the giant mosquitoes or pterodactyls. Or do you know the biggest snake that there has ever been? Sadly. 42 feet long. It's too large. We have found a fossil of a 42 foot long snake that weighed more than a ton. Someone has calculated that if you stood next to this snake, you would feel six degrees warmer just from its body warmth. Which and is, snakes are cold blooded. It's gross. That is horrifying. And that's only that they found. So there's probably bigger ones there's out there. There's probably an 80 foot snake somewhere out that's there. so bad. So if my weird uncle God says like, hey, don't eat this fruit or you'll die. And I'm like... <laughs> Nobody has ever died. What kind of threat? But then an 80-foot snake comes and tells me to eat the fruit. I'm going to eat the fruit. I'm going to say, listen, God, this 80-foot thing you let in here told me to eat the fruit. I mean, but he wasn't an 80-foot snake at this point. Dick, uh, well, you're um, disparaging my theology. I think the theology. serpent was, was uh, I don't know, was he a devious human? What other animal speaks? I guess parrots do. Maybe he was a bird. <laughs> yes, I think that's correct. And instead of being able to fly... Then he's relegated to the ground. Oh, what a horrible life for a parrot. But parrots just mimic, so... So that means uh, the snake taught the parrot to... Not what snake? No, no snake. The, the, there had to be... Someone had to teach the parrot to pull this off. Well, I don't the know. The parrot was the Again, fall guy. So many questions. Yeah. And also, if this creature was some form of man or something, was he the only one? Why aren't there more of them that are mentioned? Granted, later on we get more snakes, or maybe there already were snakes. Also, so if you, particularly our Christian listeners, right now, you think you have the answer, don't you? You think you know who this snake is. We'll come back to that in a minute. So I like the idea that the snake is forced to crawl around. A snake that is not crawling around is a lizard. We still have lizards. Does that does that mean lizards are like fugitive great tempters? I like, don't know. Lizards aren't talking either, though. The lizards are nice. Yeah, they're pretty cute. That's what they want you to think, though. <laughs> 
They're if fine. A, if a lizard offers you fruit, do not trust it. A lizard has never hurt me. <laughs> that's what you think. Never betrayed That's because you have original sin. You're deceived <laughs> by the lizard. So also, so when God made the animals and he saw that they were all good, that would include... A snake. A snake, if the snake is an animal. Is it a metaphor for something else? Quite possibly. So if God made the snake and God made said the snake is good, was God wrong? Did the snake trick God? Did the snake turn away from God? I'm also curious what trick the snake played. Or the serpent, rather. Because <laughs> he pretty much because just he's said, told, hey. <laughs> right. He just said, no, you should eat this fruit because then you'll have all the knowledge. Well, the tree was literally called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. Also, he says, did God really tell you you'll die if you eat this fruit? And God did. And then when they eat the fruit, do they die? Well, they die like nine, eight hundred years later. Well, we'll get to that. Which they were probably going to do anyway. They God, were mortal. Both, they, they, were, they were already mortal. They eat the death fruit, and then they live 800 years. So what changed? Was the snake lying? Well, maybe he was going to let them eat from the tree of life until they ate from the... He probably should have mentioned that, I think. Well, maybe he did, and we just don't have the full story, (laughs) which is why we're here today. Did a snake write this? (laughs) (laughs) So many questions. I also like the idea that God did not make the serpent. What is the earth when God starts making stuff? It is a boiling, formless void of chaos. Does it say there's nothing inside that chaos? Does it say there is no sea serpent Rahab deep within that formless void? We know that creature is in the Bible, that Rahab, that Leviathan, Psalms, Isaiah, the Garden of Gethsemane. There are snakes all throughout the Bible. This Canaanite Babylonian sea serpent that we know has been in Hebrew mythology since before the Bible was ever written. Maybe when they deleted this thing from Genesis 1, they didn't fully delete it because it's in Genesis 2. So maybe this is the sea serpent that is in every other mythology that had just been there, that it was around while God was making all this. Are we going to find out? No. Oh. <laughs> Cliffhanger. <laughs> there are several of those, including Judas Iscariot. So, all right, the snake. Christians, it's time. Uh, everybody grab a juice box from the vestibule. We will be listening to MXPX. Probably not in church. Not in church. Uh, we'll be listening That's to in the basement of DC the Talk Jesus Freak. Do you still know all the words of Jesus Freak? Uh, no. Because I'm, I'm pretty sure I do. <laughs> if you haven't heard that song, go listen to it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <laughs> if you haven't heard that song and you're listening to this podcast, you're fascinating and thank you for doing so. <laughs> so, um, the snake. That's Satan, isn't it? No. The idea that the snake is Satan. This is a retcon by non-biblical writers 800 and more years later and the book of Revelation by a dude tripping balls on the Isle of Patmos. Patmos? A full millennium after Genesis was written. Satan. Satan wasn't much of a thing for something like 2,000 years after the book of Genesis was written. The idea of Satan was around there. The idea of Lucifer was around. The idea of a fallen angel, the idea of a great tempter, a great accuser, the enemy of mankind, the great demon in Revelation who gets thrown in the lake of fire. All those ideas are there, yes. But it wasn't that big of a deal until medieval times. We need to scare some folks. Catholic Church needs to scare some folks. The Puritans need to scare some folks. Americans need it. And so you you need a bad guy. You go amp up Satan. Look at the language. The word Satan means enemy. Means It kind of means accuser in the book of Job, it's not necessarily Satan Lucifer who is testing Job. There is an interpretation where the 
accuser enemy of Job is more of like a prosecutor angel. So this idea of Satan, I guess the idea that every single antagonist in the entire Bible from page two through the last page and every page in between that it's all the same guy, that's reading kind of a bit into the historical context. It makes for a more satisfying story if you have the same villain from literally the beginning, but maybe some more fascinating story if we have several villains kind of all mashed together. Maybe we're still figuring it all out. If we want to conclude that snake equals Satan, obviously, okay, it's not a difficult case to make. Satan tempts people. Satan uh, Satan leads people astray from God. Satan is, is God's ultimate arch-villain. Cool. If you want to tie it together into a coherent story, fine. If you want to go to some non-canon contributions by the fandom, very popular fanfic by a, uh, a Redditor named John Milton, he added about 200 pages of lore, speeches like Satan is talking about how God is this big, mean tyrant. Satan's like, am I being detained? I'm going to be a sovereign citizen of hell. Instead of you know, instead of bowing to the government and paying taxes, Satan's the first libertarian. And it's, <laughs> oh boy. it's supposed to make you like sort, sort of see Satan's side, you know, in the question of, if the snake is Satan, how in the world does Satan, a fallen angel Lucifer, according to the big grand theory of Christian lore, how in the world does God's original enemy sneak into the Garden of Eden? Milton does a pretty decent job where Satan is basically in hell, thrown out of heaven, and he goes to the jailer of hell, the CO of hell, and he says to that person, hey, you, you kind of hate God too, right? And that person's like, well, yeah, he made me the CO of hell. And Satan's like, maybe you just let me out. That'd probably piss off God. And that person agrees. So then Satan and his army are like barreling toward Eden. God sees this and he's like, ah, oh, this sucks. And Jesus is like, well, I guess I'll have to die because of all this. And God's like, yeah, I guess you will. And that's the end of vacation Bible school. <laughs> Also in Milton, there's some other little cool stuff like Adam actually legit very much loves his wife. And like she's kind of like the first scientist. She's experimenting by eating the fruit. Sure. Like she's into knowledge. How are you going to tell a scientist she can't do knowledge? And Adam is like, Adam doesn't snitch on her. Adam doesn't say, oh, this lady you made made me do the bad. It's your fault, God. You should have made a lady. Because that's basically what he says right now. (laughs) That's the Bible version. The woman you put here with me gave me the fruit and I ate it. It's not his wife at this point, which she is. This this lady. This lady over here gave me fruit and I ate it. (laughs) She did it. (laughs) So first of all, it's uh, God. I think first of all, it's your fault. Then secondly, it's the lady. Uh, Also the snake and the porcupines. I didn't like them either. Instead in Milton, Adam sees that Eve is going down. And he says, you know what? So fall we all. And they go down in flames together. Yes. It's a noble deed by Adam. I think it's a little better story. But I mean, (laughs) if the purpose of a creation story is to explain why things are the way they are, then giving us a man who's just, ah, lady did bad. Okay. Yeah. That explains a lot too. (laughs) Right. Just pointing fingers. (laughs) That's a pretty accurate representation. Still happening. There are also, you know, in the Quran, in, in the Mormon scriptures, there are other interesting ideas as far as like, if this snake is satan what was the motive um there's this idea that you know god commanded all the angels to praise adam as the pinnacle of creation and one refuses lucifer so then that angel has a a grudge against humanity i think joseph smith wrote lucifer is offering to be the christ the messiah the eventual sacrifice i will be thy son and i will redeem all mankind says lucifer according to joseph smith who you know wrote this down in like ohio or whatever a hundred years ago (laughs) (laughs) you know but hey it's 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 the fandom it's the fanfic that's cool shout out to all our uh, latter-day listeners 
we will have at least one on here at some point. Uh, they're they're very nice people. Another thing about Joseph Smith in his book, like Moses is talking about Satan and talking about Jesus. Moses is talking about Jesus, like the most American scripture you could possibly write. When Joseph Smith did that, he wrote more references to Satan in the book of Moses, which was not written by Moses. There are more references to Satan in that book than in the entire canon Hebrew Bible combined. By the way, here's another thing about America and Satan. This is a pretty recent thing, and I think it's sort of a Puritan legacy thing. You know, the Puritans, the witch panic, and they they, they very much love the bad cop angels and, like, everything that's mean and mad and pissed off and whatever. To this day, you can find polls taken from the last, like, 10 years that say between 50% and 70% of Americans believe Satan is literally real. Now, now you compare that and you say like what's our control group let's go with the country part of america sprang from britain where 18 to 22 percent of people believe satan is literally real satan is three times as real in america <laughs> as it is in the country that america is most modeled after so when europeans crossed the ocean and swore they were bringing god to america they were bringing somebody They're else bringing fear y'all brought somebody else as well really a monotheist religion if we are this obsessed with Satan, and Satan is not an American creation, but a being that we have inflated to an incredible level, literally most of the country believes Satan is real. And if you believe Satan is real, okay, I sure have at many points. It's just wild to me. It's a version of the religion that is more a duotheism than a monotheism, I think. Something more akin to like the original Zoroastrianism. There is a bad God, and there is a good God, and they are eternally locked in combat, as opposed to the original idea of Judaism, which is that like, there's our God, your God sucks. Support for VBS happens in a couple different ways. You can throw us a few bucks at supportvbs.com, however many you'd like. By the time you visit that link, there might be bonuses for donors and or merch. But all Canon Bible Book episodes will always be free either way. Also, for no bucks at all, you can follow us at VBS Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Subscribe to our newsletter at jasonkirk.substack.com and leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. One other ad, the logo for this program, very stylish, 8-Bit Moses holding aloft tablets, was designed for us by Ben McCloskey of engine, like a car engine, industries.com. Web design, so forth. Also, Shanda McCloskey, Ben's wife, a number of children books for sale. that You should go check out Shanda McCloskey's website. ShandaMick.com. ShandaMick.com. Just Google her name. Can't be too many of her. <laughs> let's let's continue talking family stuff, because it's time to talk Cain oh, and we're not Abel. Yet. We're not a Cain and Abel yet? No. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Well, yeah, Cain and Abel, but childbirth. Oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> a typical man just breezing <laughs> past childbirth. Because we still haven't even really talked about after they ate the fruit, what happened. Obviously, the consequence was death, but we know that that did not happen right then. But what does happen is that they are banished from the Garden of Eden. In addition to being banished from the Garden of Eden and not being able to eat fruit and things like that, it would be a lot harder now for him to eat because now he's going to have to do all this work. For Eve, her punishment is now that childbirth is going to be painful. I'm not really sure how it was going to be prior to that because I don't see any scenario in which it wouldn't be painful. Like 
eggs. Uh, right, I guess. Or like spores. Now childbirth is painful. <laughs> the other funny part to me is part of her punishment is that her desire is to be for her husband. <laughs> Sucks for you, Eve. And he will rule over her. <laughs> truly, so... truly a fate worse than death. You have to have a husband. This brings up a good point, though. So now if, if women are supposed to be there for their husbands and serve them, was this like, is this a punishment? Is this something that we should take pride in? Yeah, so when you go back to the later verses where it's like women subject to your husbands i mean it's literally a punishment so you should openly resent that right <laughs> i mean that's how it sounds <laughs> like you should look at that as you look at like the pain of childbirth thanks eve way to go <laughs> so adam is now cursed adam's cursed to get a job he's sent now to the land from which he was created though because he was placed in the Garden of Eden after creation. So now he's, he's placed back where he started from. And the best part, so that they can't go back, there's now a cherubim with a flaming sword blocking them from the Tree of Life. If you've read if you've, if you've read many later books and, and fanfics and so forth, it's like, oh yeah, cherubim, that's an angel. If you're just reading this for the first time, what is this thing? Right. There's a giant baby holding a sword. Where did this thing come from? There were no angels mentioned before now. I literally picture a giant baby. This is a giant fat baby. Wielding a flaming sword. With no pants. <laughs> Where did he get this flaming this sword? This big fluttering baby. Every, every naked baby angel is like got curly blonde hair. These like <laughs> Jewish Hebrew babies, you know, blonde hair. Glowing blue eyes. Glowing blue eyes. Freckles and a flaming sword, and like the flaming sword, and like he's giggling. Yeah, he's, I love the like technological. So like at this point, swords hadn't even been invented yet. So okay, all you needed was the sword. It didn't even have to be on fire. You give you give this baby a sword, and already he has military superiority over the whole rest of Earth. You set it on fire. This is complete overkill. This is the equivalent of okay, now you have a nuke. But what happens once guns are invented? Can we just go take Eden from this baby now? Because like we radically outclass this kid. Where couldn't they not have gone around the flaming sword? Yeah, uh, the, the ta tactical development at the time was very limited. So I think what happened is Eve. She probably did what you did. She's like, so maybe I'll just go left and you go right. And Adam's like, like, no, no, you're supposed to listen to me. Right. <laughs> you already you got us into this mess. <laughs> no, God, it's, she's doing it again. <laughs> this woman you put here, stand her. One quick clarification. It's not actually a cherub. We were we were just kidding around. It's it's like a winged sphinx type animal. But if you'd rather think of it as a cherub, that's fine. I sure do. So also during this time, Adam and Eve uh, look down and are just stunned to discover that they are not wearing pants. Right. So up until this point, they were totally cool with being naked. And then all of a sudden after they eat the fruit, they're ashamed. So I liken this to um, puberty. Kids don't feel any shame for running around naked. They're innocent. Linking the tree of knowledge of good and evil to this event is um, interesting. Yeah. Or uh, maybe another interpretation is that the fruit is actually a three piece from Popeye's and like you eat that and you're like, wow, this is awesome. I am now more wise. But you're Or like, it's injected with hormones. <laughs> or it's like an entire stuffed crust pizza. You eat this fruit and you're like, wow, my eyes have been opened. I feel more wise because I've just eaten a stuffed crust pizza. But then you look down and you're like, oh, no, I've eaten a stuffed crust pizza. Now you're feeling sad. I don't know. But yes, I, th I think you're onto something, and I think it's a th an important thing that not just here, but also for the entire story, we should also circle back to at the end of our podcast episode, because I think it's the main thing. I think there's a lot that we read into the idea of loss of innocence in Genesis, and I think the real idea is a little bit closer to what you're saying. Now, is it time to talk Cain and Abel? Well, like, they got over their loss of innocence, obviously. Yeah, yeah oh, I gotta clock in and go to work. Well, because Adam and Eve made love. It says Eve gave birth, painfully imagine. To Cain, 
with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. <laughs> the greatest quote. In the- so, like, I don't want to really want to give Adam credit for anything here, but, like... <laughs> <laughs> Adam did nothing, as really, per usual. So like, Adam was kind of involved in this process. Was he? She brought forth a man, though, not a baby. Not a baby. Not, not, a, a, not a cherubim. Not a cherubim. But he, she just looked down. There's this whole entire bro there. No he, wonder it was painful. And he says, hey, mom. Did he say that? Yeah, it's in there. Can you drive me to the mall? <laughs> Later... She gave birth to Abel, or Cain and Abel twins, because it does not say that Adam and Eve made love here. The yeah. only other time that it's mentioned that Adam and Eve made love is then when Seth, their third son, is created. It never says that about Abel. So so Abel perhaps was spawned from a spore. Well, or... this is just the first instance of twins, perhaps. Well, twins, like, yeah, that's a pretty good explanation, but I think probably the simpler one is that he was spawned. I don't know. I love also the, uh, there are some translations of the thing Eve says, where she says, I made a man just like God did. (laughs) Yeah. What a stunt. That's a a boss. Yeah, it wasn't that hard, actually. I mean, it hurt. (laughs) And I had to touch Adam. That was awful. Anyway. the bus. Anyway, hey, God, I don't know what all the fuss was about. This is pretty easy. So, Cain... He worked the soil like his dad, Adam, and Abel was a shepherd and he tended to the flocks. One day in the Bible, it looks pretty random, but but they decided to bring offerings to the Lord. Cain brought some fruits and Abel brought an offering of fat portions from the firstborn in his flock. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So big, he, he got fatty brisket. And the Lord liked Abel's offering, but not Cain's. Well, yeah. Cain was angry about this. The Lord says to Cain, why are you depressed? If you bring me the right thing, then you'll be fine too. If you I'll stop making me eat offering. kale salad. Basically telling him he's sinning by bringing him the wrong thing. After this conversation with the Lord, which we don't really know exactly how that all played out or why his offering was bad at this point, Cain's like, hey Abel, let's go to my field. Cain attacks Abel and kills him. Hmm. The only reference to their conversation is that he says, let's go to the field. We're missing a lot of information, so this is where we want to try and fill in some of those blanks. What if that was literally the only thing he said ever said to him? Well, that would be pretty incredible, and I probably wouldn't have followed him. Hey, let's go to the field. And Abel's like, whoa, how did you make those sounds? <laughs> so, what happened? I mean, obviously, God likes Abel. That's going to be pretty annoying. One theory is everyone likes Abel. Okay. But who is everyone? So, the cherubim. Cherubim loves Abel. Abel. Or at this point, there are many other people. Cherubim's like, hey, some- do you want to hold my sword? According to some writings out there, there are other people at this point. And maybe Adam and Eve. Maybe they prefer Abel. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he wasn't Cain born as an entire man. followed in his man. father's footsteps, so you would think he would be the favored son. Oh, so that's what it is. Adam is like, I got competition now. I'm not even the world's greatest farmer anymore. Well, like, all this comes down to Adam being a lazy dirtbag. He sees his son as work in the fields, and he's like, oh, come on. Or this, maybe he had to less at, hard, and he appreciated that. So Adam, after looking up at God, like, this this lady you gave me, now he's looking at Eve, and he's saying, Ugh, this son you gave me. Whereas, whereas Abel, all he does is he goes out in the woods with his bow and his tactical orange camo. He's protecting himself and his animals and from And he comes back in like a month. Predators. Well, yeah, yeah. He, he just goes out, does his thing with his sheep, comes back with fatty brisket every now and then. Abel is cool. Well, and he's very strong now, too, because he, he's doing all of these hunting-type things where he's he's out exploring and all of that. Cain is just walking around his plants. You have at least one theory on... Yeah, but before we get to that, okay. after Cain kills Abel, then God comes along and he's like, um, where's your brother? <laughs> Cain's like, I'm not my brother's keeper. Which and, is true. But... But then the Lord obviously is all-knowing, and he says, 
what have you done? Your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. Which is probably the metalist sentence in the Bible to this point. His blood is crying out from the ground. Yes. Now Cain is already cursed. Adam had already been removed from the Garden of Eden. And now Cain is having to be removed from these lands. So he's cursed furthermore and uh he's driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive abel's blood and uh now he's a wanderer he's not very happy about it either no he can't produce from the land anymore because that was his punishment he said that his punishment was more than he could bear as a restless wanderer whoever would find him would kill him the lord decides to mark cain so that that won't happen and anyone who kills cain would be avenged seven times over but okay my question here is if Cain is marked so that he's not going to be killed, did he want to be killed? I mean, was he... <laughs> like, that's the punishment. Like, maybe his punishment was living? Because at that point, he had killed his brother, and he's he says this is the worst punishment that could happen. So, it sounds like somebody who's already on the edge. So, maybe the Lord saved him because he didn't want to be saved. Cain is not doing well. There is also in the Muslim tradition, after Cain kills Abel, a raven lands and teaches Cain how to bury Abel, adding to his shame. Not only have I killed my brother, a bird is having to teach me how to care for his body. Cain doesn't like himself. Like, Cain knows he messed up, and he knows he deserves punishment, but still, there's so much fear of death. Nobody wants to be the second person ever to die. So, like, he's asking for all sorts of protections from God. This is the first thing of this kind God has ever had to deal with. And right. God is still figuring it out, too. Clearly still figuring yeah, it this, out, too. This is the first murder. Yeah, this is the first actual crime. Right. I mean, like, eating, eating, the, eating the fruit, fruit was a sin. But, like, it's a, that's that's a sin like smoking weed. Like, nobody's hurt. Well, putting it lightly. Weed makes you smart. I don't know. I wouldn't know that. It's a sin, like... <laughs> It's a sin. This is the first sin that actually hurts somebody. But what does it mean to be avenged seven times over? So you actually looked this up, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's one theory I came across. We find that after Cain becomes a wanderer, or it actually doesn't say after. At some point, he marries a wife. He procreates with her, and then more and more of their generations come along, and... The seventh generation is Lamech, the seventh generation from Adam. One theory is that Lamech, who is one of the only descendants that we have further information on, is the one that kills Cain, obviously. Not sure how accurate this is, but what we what we learn here is that Lamech is out and he comes home and he tells his, his wife that he has killed a young man for wounding him, a young man for injuring him, and now he will be avenged 77 times obviously aware of the original vengeance plan so the theory here is that lamech kills cain so he now takes on his the seven times vengeance because it's the seventh generation and now he takes on 77 so if you happen to kill lamech's great 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 to the 77th son then boom you now have immunity for like 777 generations i don't know all i all i know from this is that god is soft on crime it's obviously like, an eye for an eye has not come up yet yeah there is no law yet and that is very clear when god hands down the law in like more than an entire book from now people are like oh we weren't supposed to be doing that so well it's like weird. oh that stuff you were killing us for oh right okay you didn't like that stuff got it well it's clear already death is not desirable because if that information has been passed along which you would imagine it would because it's like one of the only big things that we're told has happened Cain knows that Abel dying is not a good thing why does he do it I think my favorite theory Abel just didn't really care where his animals wandered and they wandered onto Cain's land Ugh. And he was tired of them pooping. Little bro, you're trampling my corn stalks. And it could have been when he's telling him, let's go to the field, he's going to point out the poop and Abel is laughing at him. Yeah. It's like, if you're stupid sheep, keep, keep pooping on eat my, my grapes 
Right. And my tomatoes, the the smell of them. Right. And the bleating. Or maybe Abel, since Cain's first sacrifice was not good and he saw that Abel's sacrifice was appreciated and he had killed his animal, Cain is like, mm, maybe I'll sacrifice Abel. Yeah, he wants, you want some fatty meat? I got some. Okay, God. I'll, I'll give you a whole cut of my brother. And then if you're saying, well, no, because then he tried to hide it from God. Well, yeah, because he realized after he did that that was stupid. Yeah, once God is like, oh, the earth is screaming at me. He's like, oh, God. So he brings bloody stuff, and that's good. I bring bloody stuff, and the earth is screaming at wrong you. Wrong kind, sir. Wrong kind. Cain just cannot get it right. <laughs> also, why did they need to go to the field? I mean, if there's no one around, why did they have to go to the field unless they were trying to avoid detection? And then it begs the question, avoid detection from who? I All mean, the other people? I mean, Cain did seem to think that he could lie to God. I mean, did he really think he could lie to God, or was he just like, so stressed out in that can, moment? I mean, his dad did the same thing. Adam, after they... She made me do it. Well, even before then... When God is walking around the Garden of Eden, they're like, hey, where, where are you guys? It's curfew or whatever. And they're hiding. Yeah, and they're hiding. And, they're saying, and he because says, why embarrassed. are you hiding? And they said, well, we were embarrassed because you're naked. And God's like, how do you know you're naked? And it's like, I mean, that's a weird question, but it's kind of a good question. These guys keep, uh, I'm just going to not tell God. And if he asks, I'm just going to play really stupid. It hasn't worked yet. My theory, and this is a convoluted one. It's not my theory. This comes from like actual biblical scholars from, from way back. Eve did not actually eat physical tangible fruit even within the construct of the story what that is referring to when we say eating the fruit of the serpent we are talking about making love to some sort of evil individual a being that would become a snake this would mean that child was actually cain this would of course mess with the timeline because it does say she made love with adam before cain was born but i think we should stick with this idea because this means cain was a snake nephilim Oh, boy. Which is uh, pretty awesome. We will, of course, have more Nephilim content in later books. Um, Nephilim being half human, half demon, half angel, half demon. But if Cain is half demon, then the story is suddenly more awesome. And also a lot weirder. Exactly one and the same. Also, we know Cain is married. And it's not specified, like you said, when he becomes married. He just We just look up one day and, oh, right, his wife. Is it possible his wife was like, your family is so freaking weird. Can you just <laughs> kill your brother and we can leave? I'm more wondering, like, at what point were they required to have marriage? Well, Cain is the first one that's actually referred to as his wife. No, Adam and Eve are. She is called his counterpart. I don't know. Cain says, I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. In this point in the story, there are three people on earth. Who is he referring to? The Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. Who was going to find him? Right. And then he was an untouchable like the mafia. Why wouldn't God just kick him out and say, you'll be fine. There are no other people. There were other people. Right. At this point in the story. And it doesn't mean that Adam and Eve were not the first. It just means that after he finished with them, he went on and created more people. Evidently. If you follow like the strict interpretation, then, oh, well, uh, all of Adam and Eve's kids, they were all doing incest and stuff. And that's how generations of people came from. They spread around. And like, if you you look at the actual like genetics of that, you're going to have a lot of very sick people. They're not going to live to the age of 950 because it's a very, very small DNA pool. You're going to have all sorts of genetic mishaps. Clearly there are other people being created we get the line cain made love to his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to enoch cain was then building a city a city all all of a sudden we have like all these non-player characters just being created we don't know their names they're just popping up all over the place there is other tradition that you can read into this josephus the jewish historian which he says the number of adam's children was 33 sons and 
23 daughters, far beyond the small handful we get in the actual Bible itself. Now we have a slightly bigger genetic pool, still not quite big enough to fill up Earth healthily. It's still not on par with the fossil record of evolution, but... That's still a bigger group than what we have in the literal Bible. But we can also take this step further and say, like, hey, all those other creation stories, Babylon, Canaan, Persia, Egypt, let's just say those happened too. God was making those people too. And maybe religions are not exclusive of each other, but more inclusive of each other. Sure. What's wrong with that? So Cain took his wife to Nod. The land of Nod is where they went. Well, it's not a place. No one knows where Nod is. Nod is wherever he is. So wherever Cain is, there be Nod. Right. Okay. As always, literally anything on the Bible, there are fanfic theories. Um, People have proposed that Cain walked as far as China with his wife. Wow. So there were no roads. There were no hotels. There were no phones. There were no shoes. This man walked, per Google Maps, walking from, let's say, somewhere right around Babylon. Garden of Eden's got to be probably right around up there based on the rivers that are described in Genesis. And walked all the way to just the border of China. Per Google Maps, that's at least a 60-day walk on modern roads. There are no roads, so let's double it. And his, his wife has to go along with this stupid adventure, too. Right. I assume she's like, can we just literally anywhere can we stop? I'm sure she created shoes. And he's like, no, we got to go to China because someone hundreds of years from now, <laughs> some saint is going to say, you know, we probably went to China. And like, if the only goal is to create distance between you and your parents, you just walk like a mile. But anyway, that's not really going anywhere. I just love the idea that Cain walked all the <laughs> way to China. Genesis 5. Well, this is Are we f- done with Cain and Abel? Yeah. Okay. I, mean, I don't really know what happened. And I'm sure the real story is far better or easier than anything that we came up with. What happened was murder. Right. We thought about doing a true crime podcast on Cain and Abel, but... There's not nearly enough evidence out there. Yeah, I mean, he did it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Genesis 5 is, um, for you fans of spreadsheets, for you fans of uh, family trees, this is the chapter for you. There are a number of points in the Bible where you have... This person was the father of this other person. And now, folks, you're on the edge of your seat. That person was also the father of another person. Yep. But there's some weird number stuff going on there. Do, do we have? Well, everyone we is very down? old. Well, there's that. First of all. So everyone in Bible times, well, at this point in Bible times, lived to be like 800, 900. Part of the reasoning for this is not that these people actually live that long because some of the numbers were totally missing. There were only certain numbers that were even used, and that seems to be far more than a coincidence. There's like a very weird pattern where specific numbers just are not used right. to conclude these this long list of ages. And somehow all of the ages that these people have lived can be broken down with um, the numbers 60 and 7 by using them as the months instead of 60 years, then adding like 7 years on top of that to create the numbers. So if you sort of translated the numbers a little bit differently than how they're presented, you come up with feasible lifespans. Right. Some of them were still pretty old. So you have in this chapter, it goes through the birth of Noah. And if you calculate the numbers you come out with, this is about the year 1050 after the creation of the universe. So these big numbers, the one way to look at them is just we're counting it wrong. They did not mean for the, they did not mean to have these numbers that big. they just didn't have the current number system. Yeah, just a completely different number system that, you know, whatever. Um, The other is like there's some intentional symbolic numerology going on there. Not to get all Bible code, but smarter people than me have written down, you know, this idea that the 60s and the 7s, that there's more going on there than There's also this idea that these big numbers are meant to establish a long, long, long history for what was a new 
new culture and new people, the Israelites, springing from the Canaanites, trying to distinguish themselves from the Babylonians, distinguishing themselves from the Persians, a dominant culture, while this was being written. It's power scaling. It's inflating your history and saying, yeah, we can trace our lineage back to literally the first human. You know, never mind that Babylon claims to have a king who was 29,000 years old. Because that's and, possible. And, and like the Epic who of knows Gilgamesh what was, they used. Never mind that the Epic of Gilgamesh is undoubtedly older than the Book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, if you say, oh, yeah, well, all our folks lived a thousand years, you can catch up pretty quickly on those numbers. And that's like a consistent creation trope of the book of Genesis is the Hebrew authors are intentionally remixing, hijacking, co-opting stories from other cultures. They're using those tropes, those tones to create a new story of their own that explains the world in the way they want to explain it and also gives themselves a history to tell. And we come to find out pretty quickly that they chose a very effective story. Also, within this lineage, two guys I want to mention. Enoch, we mentioned Enoch. There's more Enoch content in the non-canon books. He wrote the Nephilim book. If we do enough of these to do non-canon books, we'll absolutely do the book of Enoch. And we'll talk about we'll talk about all sorts of demon combat. Also, Tubal-Cain. Tubal-Cain. Tubal-Cain is in the lineage of Noah. He Best will name. Sh- he will show up in our next episode because he is the villain of a Russell Crowe movie. So, Genesis 1 through 5, the superhero origin story, right? Yeah. The origin story, superhero must have a flaw. Man is clearly not the superhero here. Man is a dummy who blames everything on woman. Woman is kind of a superhero because she's like, I created man. It was easy. <laughs> <laughs> Did it. But pa- like the main, the pain and all. <laughs> the main character here is God. I think if you read just the text and you don't say this must form the basis of my perfect religion, then I think you have to look at this text and say, this is a character who starts one place and begins to grow and change. The god of Genesis 1, 2, and so on is a flawed superhero. And in fact, there are way bigger character concerns to come. But yeah, to me, that's the starting point. I don't think it lessens his power at all, or I don't think that that changes any of that or makes it less appealing to follow him. In fact, it might make it a little easier to get on board with someone who is learning along the way as well. Yeah, I mean, if you give me a guy who's like, yeah, I'm, I'm perfect, I'm perfect and all-powerful and I know everything, and I'm like, okay, so why do mosquitoes exist? And he's like, because I'm perfect and shut up. I'm like, <laughs> all right, I don't really care what you have to say. You, or you just... why would someone so perfect create people who are so imperfect? Either he was not perfect in that moment because he thought it was hilarious, which is just mean, <laughs> or he was still learning, and that's, a co- that's okay, too. Yeah, I can get behind, I can vibe with a God who's like, listen, man, this is my first day on the job. A God who says, I have never presided over a murder case before I did not go to law school. Cut God some slack. First day on the job, just got here. If you look at the comparison of the, the nouns for God, he might have inherited this from the God of Genesis 1. That guy might have like made a planet and he was like, here you go, sucker. Here's a whole planet for you. It's awesome. It's teeming with life. And this God's like, oh, sweet. I love life. I bet all the life is great. Uh, and then he discovers it's like, oh, mosquitoes and people? This is horrible. Oh, I got, I got a lot of well, work to do. And he's still clearly learning. Humanity, compared to the rest of the world, is not very old. So like, even if he's been around for billions of years, it's still like... right. He's only think, had to deal with us for a little while. Think about like how perfect and beautiful nature is. We're just not there yet. <laughs> and the land had longer. I also love the power creep, to use a term from comic books, that you have God going on. Let's go from Genesis 2 onward. You add in the historical context, and he goes from a copy of a Middle Eastern storm-slash-bull god. Very quickly, within the Hebrew Bible, he is the god who ate all the other Middle Eastern gods, and the god who like laughs at the idea that Baal even matters. By the end, once you add in the Christian Bible, he's the god who's so far above all the other gods that... 
me. If you go to the God of Revelation, that God's never heard of Baal. What a promotion to go from one of many guys who were pretty similar to like God of the universe by the end of the book. And like, if you can read Genesis 2 and say this is definitely the most powerful being in the universe, that's a weird reading to me. A guy who's like getting in arguments with people about fruit, that's the most powerful thing in the universe. They didn't have anything else to argue over yet. There were no finances. To me, and this goes back to what you're saying, the loss of innocence. The Christian reading of the creation story is this is the fall from paradise. It's the name of Milton's book. It's the idea of original sin. It's the idea that when Eve ate that fruit, that that was a moment of sin that cursed all of humanity forever, necessitated the sacrifice of Jesus. But I think it's so much simpler. Let's just set Jesus aside for a second. We'll come back to him. If we need to make this story about Jesus too, that's okay. But I want to propose a second reading of this story. This is a coming-of-age story, The Fall from Eden. It's about Adam and Eve growing up from children who frolic around in a garden and talk to animals. Next thing you know, they are grown-ups with jobs and children and responsibilities doing things that suck. Look at a verse. Genesis 2:24. This is the verse right after Adam first beholds Eve. This verse says, a man leaves his father and clings to his wife. It sets this out as this is how the world works now. Honestly, this could be the reason God was hesitant to make Eve because God knows as soon as he makes Eve, Adam is no Adam's priority is no longer God, right? God is throwing all these animals at Adam like I hope I don't have to make another person because then I won't be Adam's most important person. So as soon as Eve is here, we know a man leaves his father and clings to his wife. The creation story is explaining to us why things work the way they are. Two verses later, we begin the story of the fall, which is the story of a man leaving his father, God, and clinging to his wife. It's just a coming of age story. It's one way to look at it. It sounds ridiculous. I keep thinking of the movie Lady Bird which is about a parent and a child who know their time as a single entity is coming to a close. They love each other. They fight. (laughs) They fight more because of that. Yes. They're resisting it. They know they have to part. The law of the universe dictates that they will part. They do, and they hate it. Lady Bird thinks she'll like it. Spoiler (laughs) alert. It's been out for several years. I have to spoil this movie to spread the gospel. I haven't seen it yet. To spread the gospel of Christ. The movie rules, by the way. Um, (laughs) That reminds me of the relationship between Adam and God. They are going to separate. Lady Bird was divinely inspired. There's a lot of church stuff in it. She goes to a Catholic high school. There's nun humor. There's cool nuns. (laughs) We already know Adam was mortal. Adam did not eat from the tree of life. God admitted it. God knew Adam was going to die. God wasn't afraid of Adam developing the knowledge of good and evil. God was afraid that once Adam became immortal, Adam wouldn't need God anymore. Or at least he wouldn't think he would. God was being a possessive dad, which is a normal thing parents do. In mythology, a creation story, it's not necessarily supposed to establish religious stuff. It's not necessarily supposed to inform, like, you should feel guilty every time you sin because this all goes back to Eve biting a fruit. This is why Jesus was murdered. It doesn't have to have all that stuff. It can tie in. That's cool. There's also just a coming-of-age story here. I think that this part of God not wanting Adam to leave and knowing that it's happening and all of that actually makes it more compelling to believe that God cares deeply about all of his children. Yeah, it's sympathetic. He's acting like all of our parents. Do you have uh, you have any, any closing thoughts before our altar call? Um, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate your time being spent with us, learning and growing. Thanks for joining us. I think my idea of an altar call is... Jesus said, wherever two or more of you are gathered in my name, there I am also. Therefore, wherever two people are gathered together in the spirit of the love of the universe, that is church. God is with us. Let's remember that the word gather does not just mean physical space. We can reach across 
the internet. If that is where we gather, then so be it. So thank you for gathering with us. Thank you for gathering with us. And I guess that's it for the first episode of the Vacation Bible School Podcast. Next time. No. What did he say? He's going to destroy the world. Hey. I'm flooded, 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 flooded.